0: Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Casual Criminalist, I as always am your host Simon, if you are enjoying this show and you're listening to it as a podcast, leave us a review, you can't do that if you're on Spotify but I mean, maybe in the future they'll introduce this, they bloody well should, if you're listening on Apple or whatever, please do leave us a review, like this video if you're on YouTube, all of that good stuff, what happens here, Callum, the writer for this channel has written me a script, it's like some 18 pages Callum. (laughs) These get longer and longer, and I love it. And I'm going to read it. Jen, afterwards, our wonderful video editor, audio editor person, is going to add some, well, make it more moodful, add some music, all of that stuff, which I, of course, have not heard, uh, but I will in the future. And let's just jump into it, shall we? September 1995. Everyone's favorite president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, has canceled a trip overseas in order to tend to a horrific situation unfolding at home. Along with officials from the Department of Justice, he travels to Boxburg, just a few miles east of Johannesburg, to give a press conference. On national television, he addresses the people of the cities and townships, asking for their help in identifying the menace whose crimes have been plaguing the nation for over a year, the one dubbed the ABC killer by the press. It's hardly the most intimidating nickname chosen because the serial killer's victims had been turning up in the vicinity of Atteridgeville, Boxburg, and Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland, South Africa, that is. Authorities didn't know at the time, but the killer had already claimed a staggering 31 victims. Oh boy, we are in serious serial killer territory. I mean, not that all serial killing isn't serious, but 31 is, uh, is is more than qualified, and would go on to kill at least five more. That figure could potentially be as high as 72, but in either case, by the time he was done, the ABC killer would go down as South Africa's worst-ever serial killer to date. This is the story of a sickening spree, troubled origins, and dramatic capture by Johannesburg's finest. Spoiler alert, apparently. I mean, I guess... I. Oh, by the way, I've not read these... If you're new here, if you're wondering what's going on, I've never read this before. I am discovering all of this as you do as well obviously with some of the other ones like if we did a video about Ed Gein I'd be like well no I know he wore people's faces but most of them like the ABC murders South Africa's bloodiest very new to me A is for atrocities it was the year before Mandela's public plea that the bodies first started turning up in fields around the Johannesburg suburb of Cleveland. The first was discovered on July the 17th with three messages written on the corpse She's a beach, uh, sick. I am no fighting with you, please, again, sick. We must stay here for as long as you don't understand. Is it not a little ironic that someone named the ABC Killer struggled a little bit with spelling? It seems like these scrawled messages were meant for the eyes of the police officers, an attempt to justify the horrific scene in front of them. The woman had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death. Before leaving her where she lay, the killer had draped a piece of clothing over her face and weighed it down with rocks. She was later identified as Maria Menen Manama. Over the next six months, a swath of other bodies were found around Cleveland. Some sources say as many as 15, all displaying the same modus operandi. All of the victims were female, young, black and unemployed. They had seemingly been lured out to remote areas around town where the murderer would rape and strangle them. Some were found blindfolded or with their hands and feet bound. The murder weapon was usually the victim's own underwear. In some cases, the families even received phone calls from the killer afterwards, who got a sick pleasure out of taunting them. The South African police were unaccustomed to this kind of organized, methodical serial killer. Criminologist Rika Snyman explains that in the old days of apartheid, these kinds of killers could easily fly under the radar as so long as they kept their crimes restricted to the predominantly black slums. This is occurring in 1995, so we are post apartheid. But after the fall of apartheid, they began tracking cases and linking together murders, resulting in a wave of identifications. At a current total of 117, the country actually has the third highest amount of serial killers in the entire world. Well, you learn something new every day. Who's number one and two? I I gotta say, I mean, in my mind, just being on this, you know, doing this show, I feel like the United States, maybe Japan? I want to say Japan. I don't know why it's Japan. Like, per capita, obviously countries with most serial killers we rarely look up things live on this show but i just gotta know this oh england no come on england why yeah per capita england is number two united states number one wow oh wait this isn't per capita but south africa is number three at 117 um let me see if i can find a per capita okay i can't find it easily i want to get on with the show Uh, But on the page I'm looking at here, (laughs) there's a giant uh, American and uh, Union Jack joined together. American flag and Union Jack joined together. So let's assume that the US and the UK leaded the charts. Brilliant. (laughs) What is it with English-speaking countries? (laughs) Murder. Serial killing. The arrest of David Salethi. The cops would soon be adding another mark to that tally when the perpetrator of the Cleveland killings made a fatal mistake. Through interviewing the victims' families, detectives discovered that many of the women had meetings arranged with a mysterious individual who claimed to have a job offer for them. This explains the formal clothing most wearing. Thankfully, their mysterious recruiter accidentally revealed himself soon after. A young woman named Amanda Thate was the second victim of this South African strangler, found dead on August 6th. The following December, a man was recorded by an ATM camera, withdrawing money with her credit card. This was David Salep, a Johannesburg native now charged with the murder of the 26-year-old victim and a strong suspect in at least five other deaths in the area, potentially as many as 15. Investigators never got much of a chance to quiz him on exactly how many he was involved in because the very next week, the front page headlines read, "...suspect in serial c- murders killed by police." Here the cops tell it while on a walkthrough of various sites involved in the murders david Celeb grabbed a tree branch from the ground and smacked a detective to the floor he was raising the branch in the air to strike him again when another officer shot him in the head he died in hospital that day yes um maybe it happened that way also possible that it, it didn't after that the officer who delivered the kill shot was exonerated on the grounds of self-defense while the other was reportedly treated for a bit of back pain another case closed good job boys yeah um again that is definitely sarcasm it's again like police stop being lazy i I feel like i don't know police generally good guys out there i mean they obviously do some terrible things but it's generally a minority and it's like what is going on why are you so lazy, though? Please, find the people who are killing. Don't just be like, yeah, yeah, it was him. Done. Game over. But if the ABC killer at this point, just the C killer, was really six feet under now, then why didn't the bodies stop piling up? Well, tell you what, Callum, probably because it wasn't him. The next six months saw the death after death in and around the town of Atter Ridgeville, Praetoria, about 40 miles north of Joburg. The Pretoria Murder and Robbery Team established a task force to investigate the crimes. Their first task was to establish a definite link between each murder. What they discovered was that all of them displayed the exact same methodology as the Cleveland murders, meaning the police down here had either gotten the wrong guy or he wasn't working alone. Even worse is the fact that the killer's methods were becoming increasingly sadistic. On April the 12th, 1995, 25-year-old letter Nonthanzado, oh my, I apologize for the getting I uh, this is difficult. Nadlang mandler uh was discovered dead on the outskirts of town, the fourth victim that year. It's interesting with this. I mean, not interesting, natural, normal, expected, that when I'm, like, there's a killer and he's got a really hard name to pronounce, I'm like, oh, whatever, (laughs) who cares? He's a horrible murderer. But when it's a victim, I'm like, I feel it would be more respectful to pronounce the name, but there's no way that that name is going to be in my pronunciation dictionary. So uh, I I do my best, but I I, I obviously, obviously, don't mean any disrespect. The very next day, the body of her infant son... Why? Sibusiso was discovered nearby. Apparently, he had sustained a head injury, likely when his mother was taken by the killer and died of exposure. At two years old, he was the killer's youngest victim. This triggered a wave of interest from the South African press, who were usually preoccupied with stories of crimes against the affluent white community rather than the invisible residents of the black townships. It was then that the phantom of the ABC killer first started to enter the popular imagination, a short-lived burst of media coverage which fizzled out within a few weeks. It would be a few more months yet before panic fully gripped the country. This was when the killer finally earned the B in his nickname, with a horrifying discovery in Boxberg that sent the country into full-blown panic. B is for the Boxberg Bodies on September 16, 1995, an off-duty police officer was out in the scrubland around Boxburg hunting rabbits with his dog. Suddenly, the dog caught a scent of something and ran off the trail with his master in tow. It wasn't a rabbit that it found. The dog led the officer to a woman's body, brutally beaten and abandoned, near the entrance to one of the mine shafts, which are scattered around the area. When forensic investigators arrived at the scene, they soon discovered that there wasn't just one victim. They were standing on top of a mass grave. Ten bodies were exhumed at the site, some severely decomposed, in an operation which lasted two days. It's thought that the killer might have taunted his newest victims by showing off the bodies before subjecting them to the exact same fate. That is all kinds of f***ed up. The link between the victims and those found in Atta Ridgeville was quickly established, and the police revealed to the press that they were potentially dealing with the worst recorded serial killer in the history of South Africa. The events brought media attention to a fever pitch, especially when Nelson Mandela himself visited the scene of the crime. He then gave the speech, which we began today's episode with. The residents of South Africa's poor black communities were understandably skeptical about trusting the police on account of the whole racial subjugation thing, so the president urged them to aid the authorities in capturing the killer that was terrorizing their towns, saying, "...they are not the enemy anymore. They need our support." Some members of the public had already come forward with their suspicions. On July 17th, a man named Ab- Absalom Sangueni spotted a couple trespassing in a field in North Boxburg and warned them that it was off-limits. The man and the woman just ignored his shouts and kept going. Within an hour, the man returned alone. He stuffed a shiny object into his trouser pocket and looked around nervously before taking off. Sangweni was suspicious about the fate of the young woman, so he walked into the field to investigate, finding the strangled body of Josephine Malangeni. Unfortunately, her killer had been too far away for Sangweni to offer up any concrete details. MIND HUNTER TAKES ON SOUTH AFRICA that was as close as the police would come to a positive ID on their suspect for many months yet. With the added pressure of intense media attention, they scrambled to produce the psychological profile of the killer so they might predict his next move. South Africa's very first criminal profiler, Mickey Pistorius, took the lead. She drafted up an image of a man in his late 20s or early 30s, black on account of the witness testimony and the fact that he could move unnoticed in the predominantly black areas that he hunted in. He was likely somewhat handsome and charming enough to win the trust of his victims. Despite all that, he quite obviously hated women. I mean, also, in my mind, like, serial killers are mostly white, right? <laughs> like, I'd, you think of all the people you cover, the famous ones, mostly, mostly white middle-aged dudes. I mean, we did an episode about the 11-year-old girl serial killer, but that's a rarity. Pistorius also reckons her mark was probably divorced or separated from his spouse and enjoying visiting and enjoyed visiting bars, possibly had past convictions for theft or fraud, and enjoyed collecting mementos from each of his victims. She also reckoned that the killer had, quote, a high sex drive and reads pornography. People read pornography. I mean, I guess there's like text pornography, but Okay, His fantasies to which he masturbates are aggressive, and he believes that women are merely objects to be abused. He enjoys charming and controlling women. When he approaches a victim, it is done in a very calculating way, and he is very conscious that he is eventually going to kill the victim and savors the thought while he softens her up. Yes, she just called him a wanker. If that all sounds very specific, I reckon you'll be blown away with just how spot-on it mostly turned out to be. It is interesting with these criminal profiles where they're like, da-da-da-da-da, and you're like, that is just... So specific. And I mean, sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're... I I feel most often they're right. But it always feels like witchcraft, doesn't it? Pistorius was still a relative rookie at profiling in those days, so she called in help from the States in the form of retired FBI veteran Robert Ressler. He was the inspiration uh, for one of the leads in the TV show Mindhunter, the first person to coin the term serial killer. And look, if you're listening to this show or watching this show, you've probably seen Mindhunter. And if you haven't, you should. It's really good. And I can't wait for the second. Are we on second or third? Something's coming. I feel like it must be coming soon although COVID has slowed down everything. But I'm looking forward to the new season, if that's two or three, I don't remember. Flying to South Africa four? Can't possibly be four. Doesn't matter. Flying to South Africa for a week-long consultation in September, he gave a seal of approval to Pistorius' work, agreeing that the cases in all three communities were related. Together the two also predicted that the killer would eventually contact the media based on his previous attempt to communicate with the police through his grisly graffiti. He also upheld the suspicion that the killer may not have been working alone and may, any, may have even been a direct accomplice of David Selepi. Again, Selepi was not available for questioning on the matter on account of being shot in the head by a trigger. A happy cropper. Still, though, the crimes which were pinned on him before his death would eventually establish a definitive link to the man the police were still hunting. C is for capture. We're not even. We're not close to halfway through. Is he going to get caught already? After exhuming all the bodies from the grave near the Van Dyke Mine in Barksburg, the police set about discovering the identities of each of them. Some would remain forever unknown, but most could be traced to missing persons cases from the past few months. One was 45-year-old Amelia Rapidal, who disappeared on the 7th of September. A while after her husband received the devastating news, he began sorting through his deceased wife's belongings. Among them, Mr. Rapidal found an envelope with the world's Child Protection Community Organization written on the front. On the back was an address. in. Victoria, apparently the headquarters of the charity and a date and a time written underneath, the exact date of Amelia's disappearance. He peeled open the envelope to find a job application, suggesting that Amelia had landed a position with the company, an offer, of course, which never existed. The police knew these job offers were a recurring feature of a con already used to draw dozens of women to their deaths. Back in July, taxi driver Jimmy Le reported that his wife Mildred had an interview scheduled with a Dr. Williams on the day she disappeared. She left the door that day, ecstatic about the prospect of landing a desk job at the doctor's charity. Jimmy would next see his wife three weeks later, when he was called to identify her body at the morgue. It seems that now the police finally had an address for the mysterious employer, but when they looked into the charity Amelia was applying for, they found it wasn't registered. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate they looked into it. What, what were they really expecting to find? <laughs> of course it's fake. It's a fake address. You're just going to meet them there and take them somewhere else. However, some further digging into the fake organization turned up a few potential suspects, one of whom looked very likely indeed. Well, I mean, yeah, I kind of, I, I guess I jumped the gun on that one. <laughs> a mysterious phone call. The trail was heating up nicely, and things got going with a sensational development on the 3rd of October 1995. On that day, one of the most particular prophecies of the psych profilers came true. The ABC killer contacted the press. Just hours after the latest body had been found, that of 20 year old Agnes Mabouli, the office of Cape Town based newspaper The Star received a phone call. Journalist Hasmond De Beer answered the phone, and the caller identified himself as Joseph Magwina, the man who is so highly wanted. During the interview which followed, Mr. Magwina told of how he was once falsely imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit, and the killings were his way of getting revenge for the torment that he endured behind bars. You're insane. Like, what does killing people, unrelated people, have anything to do with your time behind bars? You're not getting back at the justice system with this one, you're just getting back at random strangers who did nothing to you, you psycho. He said, I force a woman to go where I want, and when I go there, I tell them, do you know what? I was hurt, so I'm doing it now then I kill them. When quizzed on how many victims he had murdered in this way, he reported the number of 76, meaning there were plenty of bodies still to be found. Before hanging up, he provided directions to one of them as yet undiscovered by the police. These turned out to be completely accurate. While that is a good way of proving that you are not a prank cooler, serial killer. Although Manguina boasted a huge number of victims, there was one crime he adamantly denied. This was the case of two-year-old Sibasisu and his mother Letta. The murderer said he loved children and would never do anything to harm one. When Beer asked if there was a number he could reach the killer on in the future, and Magwina gladly gave him one, it was registered to a prey phone in Pretoria, but by the time the police rushed there, the murderer was long gone. It was a devastating near miss, especially since the cops were pretty certain they had already cracked the real identity of Mystery Man Maguina. In the days leading up to their call, investigators had continued to gather details about the charity organization used to lure in the victims with promise of work. They began looking through phone records for any recurring numbers, and eventually found one which had been contacted by several of the victims. They asked the phone company, who the number was registered to, and got the name of a woman in Pretoria. When quizzed about the so-called Child Protection Community Organization, she pointed the cops in the direction of her brother, Moses Sitov. A community campaigner for a similar organization and day laborer who was known for returning runaway children to their parents. So he sounds like a lovely bloke. He does. He does. Unless he's a horrible serial killer, but just a quick glance into Sitol's past revealed that he was in fact quite a likely candidate for South Africa's most wanted. For one, he had a direct connection to the second victim in the Cleveland killings, Amanda Thee. She and Sitol had actually been romantically involved when she was killed—an affair while his new wife sat at home pregnant with their first child. If you cast your mind back, you remember that it was Thee's credit card that led the authorities the very first break in the case—the arrest and untimely death of David Selepe, which seems like a pretty convincing and connection between the two suspects. It does! On top of that, 31-year-old Sitol was already a convicted rapist, having spent six years in prison for an assault back in 1989. Uh, yeah, okay, so… I mean, (laughs) he really did sound like a nice guy given his work and all this stuff. No, he spent six years in the joint for rape. Yeah, not a good dude. Not a good dude. You'll notice that his biography matched up perfectly to the details given by the mysterious caller who confessed his crimes to the newspaper. The stars were aligning for the detectives, who were certain they'd finally got their man. There was just one problem, though. though. Sittall was nowhere to be found. His wife had kicked him out back in December 1994 and had been sleeping on the streets ever since. With no idea where they might find him, the police decided to release an image of their prime suspect to the press. In early October, his face was plastered over the front pages, along with a warning from police commissioner George Fivers, discouraging mob justice should the suspect be caught by any would-be vigilantes. Anyone who spotted Sittal should follow the standard legal procedure, hand him over to the police to be shot in the head away from prying (laughs) eyes. Savage. Don't bring a hatchet to a gunfight. Unfortunately, Moses Siddall managed to avoid being spotted long enough to claim another three victims in the areas around Boxberg the very next week after his face was revealed – Agnes Mabouli, Beauty N'Dabeni, and an unidentified Jane Doe. Even though he could still kill freely, Siddall must have really felt the pressure piling on. After all, the aforementioned risk of mob justice was no joke. South Africa is the home of a particularly brutal kind of lynching called necklacing. I've heard of this. It's uh, the one with the tires, I think. It consists of filling a rubber tire with petrol, forcing it over a victim's arms and chest, and then lighting it on fire. That doesn't sound particularly appealing, so perhaps to protect himself from such a fate, Sithole contacted his brother-in-law in in mid-October and asked him if he could get a hold of a gun. He agreed and arranged a meeting at the factory where he worked in Benoni, just north of Boxburg. But the brother-in-law had already disowned the ABC killer at this point, much like everyone else who knew him. He went to the police and helped organize an operation to snare Sithole when he arrived to pick up the weapon. Yeah, dude, I mean... If I would if I was just living my normal life and then it turned out that I was a horrific serial killer, and then uh, I was like, oh my God, I need a gun. I would fully expect my family to turn me in. I'd be quite disappointed if they didn't, to be honest, because you're you're a horrific serial killer. <laughs> Inspector Francis Mulavezi was sent to the factory undercover, posing as a new security guard without the knowledge of any of the regular employees. On october eighteenth, Sittol arrived at the arranged time, and was invited inside to wait by the undercover cop on account of the rain. Sitol refused, he sensed something wasn't quite right. When Inspector Mulovietzi uh, stepped inside, saying he was going to fetch the brother in law, the ABC Keller made a break for it. The detective Pursued him, firing two warning shots into the air as he ran. Eventually, he cornered Sittol in an alleyway, at which point the killer charged with him at an axe, not sure where he got that from, and Molovedzi shot him in the right leg, but Sittol kept coming. tumbled over the officer and a struggle ensued. Siddle managed to bite the detective's thumb before Muller-Hedsey fired two close-range shots right through his stomach, ending the fight. It took two days in intensive care before the ABC killer was fit to be transferred to a military hospital where he made a full recovery. I bet you weren't expecting that. Not getting shot twice in the stomach? It's kind of amazing you survived. So far, much of the prophetic work of the profilers had turned out to be correct. Moses was a ladies' man in his early thirties, separated from his wife with a real hatred for the female sex, and he had decided to contact the media. And the bullseyes didn't stop there. One admittedly uncorroborated source reports that he refused to talk until a female officer was brought in, then gave a statement confessing over ten murders. He even describes a few in detail, which is when the female officer noticed that he had started playing with himself. Dude. Don't be a psycho. Just as predicted, Moses Sittall was in fact a total wanker. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) It's a dark joke. Here is a bit of what that unfortunate female detective found out about him, minus the masturbation breaks. Hopefully, please just cut them out, Callum. Let's just say he's a weirdo. Enough. A miserable biography. Moses' Stittl's story began in Voslurus, Boxberg in 1964. He was born into poverty during the apartheid era, and his family fell on even harder times when Moses' father passed away. His mother decided that she didn't fancy caring for five kids by herself, so she just dumped them at a police station with instructions to never tell anyone who their mother was. Great work, there. Moses was just five years old at the time and spent three years in orphanages before eventually running away to escape the systemic abuse of the staff. His mother rejected him once again, sending him back to the orphanage. This time he made a break for it, he went to live with his older brother Patrick. When he was old enough to work, Moses got a job in one of the Boxburg Gold Mines, along with several other odd jobs throughout the years. It was in his 20s that he started acting as an unofficial youth counsellor. He would find young runaways on the street and return them to their parents, perhaps by explaining to them how lucky they were to have parents that actually wanted them in the first place. The trauma of his own abandonment likely affected Moses deeply, and he didn't handle the trauma particularly well. Oh, look! A traumatic childhood, leading to someone being a serial killer. I mean, we've never seen this before. Parents, look after your kids. His first conviction. Moses was well known as a bit of a ladies man. His friends and family knew him to be sexually active from a young age, with a long line of girlfriends. However, what they weren't aware of was the violence he enacted on the women that he spent his nights with. His first suspected rape happens in September 1987, the victim a Johannesburg woman who would eventually testify against him in court, although not for that exact crime. In 1998, he began abusing his 17-year-old girlfriend, Sabongar Nkosi, and even raped her 15-year-old sister later that year. The younger Nkosi sister reported being strangled to the point of unconsciousness during the act. Sator carried out another assault on a Cleveland woman later that year, and in February 1989 he did the same to Buyiswa Doris Swakamisa. He threatened his victim with a broad South African machete called a panga, saying he would kill her if she ever reported the crime. A few months later, Miss Swakamisa started a new job and saw her attacker standing outside her workplace. She called the police, who swiftly came in and arrested him. The police decided it'd be a good idea to have the rapist and his victim share the backseat of the police car on the way to the station why are they both going what did she do (laughs) no arrest him call her in later what are you up to police it was a pretty horrific move made worse by the fact that moses did not exercise his right to remain silent he spent the ride shouting at swakamisa saying that he should have killed her when he had the chance dude that's not smart you're in the back of a police car (laughs) what are you doing you're literally committing crimes in the back of a police car what is wrong with you He quickly changed his tune during the trial, maintaining his innocence, but the damage was already done. Unsurprisingly, Moses was convicted of rape and sentenced to six years in prison. It should have been more. (laughs) Definitely more. Sit All In Love It was while in prison that Moses met a woman called Martha Ndlovo, who had come to visit her nephew, a fellow inmate. She later recounted, during his murder trial, "...he began to write me letters. Initially I didn't respond, but after a while I agreed to a relationship, so I started to visit him regularly until he was released on parole in November of 1993." What are you doing? I do wonder about this. Like women who fall in love with men and serial killers and all of this stuff, who are in prison? What are you doing? going to prison to visit your nephew and then getting involved in a romantic remote relationship with a convicted rapist what's up with you so you're broken as well um i mean it's very odd behavior far be it from me to question martha's choice of romantic partners sorry callum but i absolutely did just that and i kind of feel justified in in questioning someone's choice of a romantic partner when that that partner is a convicted rapist uh but i suppose it just goes to show how convincing this convicted rapist can be manipulate yeah again uh i don't want to be like it's her fault it's not her fault (laughs) it's not her fault but she hasn't made a good decision but yeah he's he's a manipulator That's it. Manipulating women was all part of the power fantasy for Moses, just as the profiler suspected, and his motivation was about exerting twisted and violent control. In prison, however, he had all that power stripped away from him. He later claimed that he was abused and beaten by his cellmates, and it's thought that he might have become a victim of sexual assault himself. This was likely what he was referring to when he said during the phone call, I was hurt, so I'm doing it now. As Martha mentioned, Sittall was released in 1993 on good behavior. The couple moved in together in a house in Pretoria. She soon fell pregnant with their daughter Brigitte, and the couple got married soon after. Around this time, Sittall decided to found a charity organization, Youth Against Human Abuse, as a vehicle for his vigilante social work. With the help of a typist at his car washing job, he drafted up official looking forms of reporting abuse against women and children, then handed them out around schools and community centers. He also organized meetings at a local school offered to help organizations combating domestic violence and continued helping the strays and runaways of the townships find their way back home. On the face of things, he was the perfect community leader, a family man who campaigned for the rights of the mistreated. But as we know, during the same time, he was becoming one of the worst offenders these very same communities had ever known. His Spree A Very Good Lesson Similar membership forms and letters were used by Moses to win the trust of his victims. He presented himself as a successful businessman and charity advocate, offering rewarding work to women in areas plagued by unemployment. Using one of his six known aliases, he would approach them on the street and introduce himself. His easy charm and silver tongue made selling the lie easy. Ultimately, he would invite the women to come to his charity HQ for an interview. Either that same day, or after a bit more convincing via phone calls and written correspondence, Moses would lead his victims towards a shortcut to the charity building. This of course meant cutting across a barren remote piece of waste ground, once out of sight of any witnesses, he would strike. To hear him tell it, the violence spree began when his first victim asked him for directions. He saw in her a surrogate for the young woman who had sent him to prison all those years ago and… …the young woman had sent him to prison. (laughs) Dude, what are you talking about? You're a rapist. That's what sent you to prison. Being a rapist. And he took his chance to enact his revenge against womankind at large. His own wife was five months pregnant with the daughter at the time. Moses later said on camera, I killed her and left her there. I went straight home and had a shower. Over the following year, he would do the same to many more women. Some were found with their hands bound behind their backs. some with blindfolds tied around their heads, others had clothing draped over their faces after death. As if the killer couldn't stand looking to the eyes of the humans he had just murdered. Despite his propensity for violence, it was just a silly little argument which eventually caused Moses' marriage to fall apart. In the spring of 1995, he had taken a set of keys to work belonging to an elementary school where he held many of his charity meetings. The school asked Martha to return them, and when Moses returned home, he had to cut the couple had an argument which resulted in their breakup. Sittol continued his spree while sleeping rough in train stations around Pretoria and Joburg. This was when the bodies started appearing at an alarming rate in a Ridgeville, some of them near the railways. While awaiting trial for the murders at Boxburg Prison, Sittol agreed to film a jailhouse confession tape made by a fellow inmate. He was promised a share of the royalties to be delivered to his daughter. In the tape, he nonchalantly smokes a cigarette while describing the horror he put his victims through. He claimed he believed he was teaching them a very good lesson. Well, They'd be dead. So what's the point? Just stop it. The lesson began with taunting his victims, telling them exactly what he planned on doing to them. He would then challenge them to escape or die. His methods became increasingly sophisticated as time went on, tying the women's hands to their necks so they would suffocate themselves if they struggled. As for how many lives Moses Sittal claimed in his sadistic way, that's still up for debate. By the time the case went to trial, he had been charged with a total of 38. However, in the tape, he claims that only 29 of them were his from July 1995 onwards, and the rest were tacked on unfairly by the police. Compare that with the 72 victims claimed in his pseudonymous interview with The Star, and it's tough to put a fine point. On the tally. Whatever the case, the very last victim of the ABC killer was found several weeks after his capture on November the 6th. A local of Germiston found the body of an unidentified woman while walking in a field. After that, the killing ceased. It seemed like the police had finally got the right guy. Trial. It would be almost another entire year before Moses was set to stand trial for his crimes. During that time, he was moved to Pretoria Central Prison, where doctors confirmed that he was HIV positive. This unfortunately meant the same for his blameless wife and child, just another reason to love South Africa's public enemy number one. Good lord. Apparently the guards and inmates at Praetoria Central weren't big fans of him either. His trial was scheduled to begin on November the fourteenth, nineteen ninety-six. But on that day the accused rocked up to court in blood soaked trousers from a knee injury. According to the guards, he had suffered a bad fall that morning. Although I reckon someone decided to teach Moses a very good lesson of his own, yeah. What happened to his knee? It's been crushed. It's been absolutely crushed and it's bleeding everywhere. It's like I oh, fell. He fell onto a onto a club. <laughs> Once he was back on his feet, the trial was rescheduled for the following February. Moses Sittal was facing 38 charges of murder, along with 40 for rape and 6 counts of robbery. The prosecution had collected together an impressive 350 witnesses, from his earliest rape victims to the families of the deceased, with the aim of putting South Africa's worst-ever serial killer behind bars for life. I have a strong feeling that that's exactly what's going to happen. Did they have death penalty in South Africa? Do they still? I don't know. I doubt it somehow. Evidence It seemed like a pretty clear-cut case. For one, there was the aforementioned confession recorded in prison the year before, which Moses now outright denied. On top of that, an American voice expert testified that the individual who had called the newspaper to confess was almost definitely him. The man himself was calm and collected through the whole affair, even as the victim's families shouted abuse from the stands. He even showed little emotion when his own wife took the dock. She rejected his request to hold his infant daughter while she gave testimony, telling the court how she no longer loved her husband after discovering who he really was. Shocking revelation. More importantly, she also confirmed that several articles of evidence belonged to Sittol. These pieces of jewelry had previously been identified by family members of some victims, proving that the killer had stolen them from the bodies as souvenirs. Several months into the proceedings, Sittol once again had to be rushed out of court, this time for vomiting blood. A stomach ulcer was to blame, potentially something to do with being shot in the gut the year before. The defense team's version of that particular story exemplified their strategy. They wanted to paint Sittol as a mistreated victim, railroaded into confessions by a manipulative police force. When recounting the shooting, they argued that Sitol had been drawn in by a sting operation, nor had he attacked the officer with an axe. In fact, he had just been casually walking down the street when he accidentally bumped shoulders with Inspector Mullahedzi Then, without word, the cop just started blasting for basically no reason at all. Sounds likely. Don't be ridiculous. This is South Africa, not America. Please don't shoot me. <laughs> Verdicts. Sittol's massive victim complex failed to win the sympathy of the judge and jury. On December fifth, 1997, after an exhausting trial, Sittol was convicted on all counts. During the three-hour verdict reading, he sat emotionless, scribbling down notes on a pad. At the end of the proceedings, he gathered up his documents and left the courthouse with a smile on his face. The next day, he returned to court for sentencing. David, Justice David Carstairs, told Sittal that, had South Africa not abolished the death penalty in 1995, oh, he just missed it. That's a shame. He wouldn't have hesitated in dolling it out here. Since that wasn't possible, he instead slapped him with the maximum sentence possible for each and every one of the crimes to be served consecutively. so One after the other. (laughs) This meds a gargantuan total of 2,410 years behind bars. It might sound like a lot, but the silver lining for Sittall is they'll be eligible for all after a measly 930 years. Good news! When the sentence was announced, the spectators in the gallery cheered. Some still weren't satisfied, crying out for the return of the death penalty, a sentiment echoed in some of the tabloids soon after. Mm, mm, I get it, but uh, just let him rot behind bars. He'll die in prison. It's enough. We don't need to bring back the death penalty. I I feel like that, even though I don't know where I feel on the death penalty, how I feel about the death penalty in general. Like, I feel morally I should be against it, but it always comes down to, like, if someone killed my family... I'd kind of want them to be put to death. Or like if someone's like a child murderer, I'd be like, we should just get rid of them, shouldn't we? But well, then morally, I'm like, should the state be killing people? I don't know. This isn't my platform for like figuring, figuring out the morality of the death penalty. My personal take on the morality of the death penalty. Let's just move on. But I don't think they should bring it back just to kill someone who's particularly bad, because that'd be weird. Regardless, for most, it's ignored a satisfying end to one of the darkest chapters in South African criminal history. The country's worst ever serial killer is now whittling away his days in CMAX, the Mexican maximum security block of Pretoria Central, where he'll remain for the rest of his life. Good. And I hope he's having a bad time in prison. I hope that… <laughs> it sounds so dark. But I hope you know… Oh no, when his knee got busted in, I hope he falls down a little bit more. That would be alright, wouldn't it? Aftermath. That about wraps up the story of Moses Sitol, the ABC killer, but one question remains. Was he actually the only one? We already mentioned how another rapist and murderer, David Slepp, was found in possession of one of Sitol's murdered mistress's cards, credit cards, so is it possible that they were really working together? While their methods were strikingly similar, Selepe also posed as a wealthy, successful businessman in order to lure in his victims. After Sittol was captured, Selepe was posthumously exonerated of four out of six of the murder charges, which were then transferred over to the ABC killer. But Sittol flat out denied these claims, even during his candid confession tape. so perhaps these really were the work of Selepe. There remains the possibility that he either coached Sittol on the methodology or simply inspired him without the two ever actually meeting. Alternatively, it might just be a mere coincidence that Celebi came into possession of the card. Perhaps all looted it from the body and then sold it off to some bloke down the pub. There's one further complication, too. Some speculate that the third killer may have been responsible for some of the crimes, either second accomplice or copycat. This was a theory pursued by the police for some time, but to this day no further arrests have been made. Anyone keeping tally throughout will have noticed that there are actually quite a few bodies left unaccounted for, even after both men were captured and charged. On the other hand, some reports claim that Sitor previously alluded to a total of 72 victims while boasting in prison. It could be that he was much more prolific than anyone ever knew, and he was really responsible for all the crimes and more. If you want to be really pedantic, then we should maybe be adding a further two victims to his rap sheet as well, although we can't say for certain. It's not a stretch to assume that Sitol's crimes may well have been the cause of him contracting HIV and subsequently passing on the virus to his wife. Tragically, both Martha and Bridget passed away from HIV-related complications, as they never had any access to public health care for their condition. Sitol, on the other hand, was entitled to medical treatment in prison that far surpassed that available to many poor South Africans. It's likely that he'll actually live far longer in prison. Than you would have on the outside, although probably not long enough to see the year 2927. That little touch of irony probably still keeps the capital punishment-loving judge awake at night. Wrap up, and that concludes our deep dive into one of the very worst that South Africa has to offer. Hiding behind the disguise as a pillar of the community, Moses et al. was able to terrorize the women of the township in a sick, deluded campaign of revenge. His crimes weren't targeted attack against one person, nor an indiscriminate rampage. Rather, Sittal's murderous spree was specifically intended to terrorize women as a whole. It didn't matter to him that the victims were daughters, wives, and mothers, just like his own wife and child sitting at home. Unfortunately, these kinds of people are much more common than we'd like to think, not just in South Africa, but around the world. Just last month, we saw America's Robert Aaron Long go on a killing spree targeting female massage spa workers as revenge for his own sexual temptations. Different country? Different story, same misogynistic hatred. It's pretty terrifying when you realize just how prevalent that kind of psychology really is. Just take a look around online. Or if you've had enough human violence and misery for today, just go have a nice cup of tea, browse some pictures of baby animals, and we'll have another dose ready when you are. Yeah, I, my recommendation after this, I probably go after, after these, after recording these, I usually go watch some happy YouTube videos or clips from comedy, because <laughs> I'm like, this is just horrible. Dismembered appendices. Number one. The name of top profiler Mickey Pistorius might have rung a few bells. That's because she is, in fact, the auntie of another famous South African murderer, the sprinter Oscar Pistorius. No way! I. T- That's crazy. That is quite a coincidence. Mickey claims to have a kind of extrasensory perception for detecting killers, but no word on whether she predicted the fate of her little nephew. Can't win them all, I guess. Number two, a quick word on today's minor B-list murderer, David Seleppe. After identifying him as the likely candidate in the Cleveland murders, the police launched a manhunt and he eventually turned up in neighbouring Mozambique. Salepe was found in his Mercedes-Benz with newspaper clippings of the crimes in the glove box. Before meeting his ultimate ends, he confessed to 15 total killings, four more than originally suspected. Were today's killers solo psychopaths or part of an organized murder posse? Well, we'll leave you to decide, and that is where I will leave you today. Thank you very much for listening or watching Casual Criminalist wherever you get this show. If you uh, want to like it, subscribe to it. Please do those things. If you want to leave it a review, please do that. But the best thing you can do—why not tell a friend about this fine podcast that you're listening to and enjoying? That maybe has even changed your life, it hasn't changed your life? But maybe do enjoy it. Why not tell a friend? And thank you for listening.